Um, I'm Pastor Derek. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, we're going to continue on in our series entitled The Lion Roars. Okay, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 today. So if you want to go ahead and grab a Bible, Mark chapter 5, we're going to be looking at 21 through 43. So it's a very big chunk we're looking at. So I'm going to try and do this in a timely manner um, so that I don't keep you here till dinner time. Okay? So what you may not know is that this passage actually concludes a three-part inner narrative that Mark was writing about when he's telling us of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, the past two weeks, Pastor Scott's talked about Jesus calming inner storms and Jesus calming outer storms. And first we saw Jesus actually calming an actual storm, right? Like wind, rain, lightning, thunder, all of that. Just commanded it to stop and it did. And then last week we saw Jesus calming the storm of, of a demoniac, of a demon-possessed man. Now, the reason why today concludes a three-part inner narrative is this. See, Jesus had just taught his disciples in parables about what the kingdom of God would look like when it was here. And immediately after teaching them, we find this. We find three instances where Jesus' power is on full and complete display. We, we see it in chapter 4, right after the parables, where he calms that storm. And Jesus is showing his power over nature and creation in calming an actual storm. And then Last week in chapter 5, the first part, we see Jesus displays power over what? The spiritual and the demonic world as he cleanses the demon-possessed man. Now today, we're going to see Jesus calm, I think, what most of us would consider the storm that ends all storms, human illness and death. But underneath it all, don't lose sight of this. It's Jesus using these examples of illness and death to show his power over each of our hopelessness. You know, dictionary.com says this of hopelessness, the feeling or condition of having no hope. Despair, desperation, completely done. And hopelessness is something we all battle, don't we? Every one of us does at some point. Like some of us, it's every now and then, right? It's, it's a scenario, you just feel hopeless because your kids were just a wreck all day, right? But, but then the next day, you're full of hope because they actually are on good behavior, right? But then there's others of us where we battle it every single day. And it's exhausting. I'm exhausted this morning. I'm exhausted. See, I have this illness called diabetes, and Satan uses it all the time to just drive me down. And I can't get rid of my diabetes. And so day in, day out, I fight it. I struggle it. And there's times where you just feel hopeless. I think we've all at times felt trapped, haven't we? Just in a hopeless situation with no possible way out. Not a chance. I mean, maybe you're here this morning and you feel hopeless because you've been abandoned by someone when you needed them most. 
never knew your father, never knew your mother, and they just left, and you have no idea why. And maybe that gives you a feeling of hopelessness. Maybe you feel hopeless this morning because you feel condemned to a certain negative outcome in your life. Diabetes will take my life at some point. This isn't a Debbie Downer sermon, though. It's not. There's hope within hopelessness. Maybe you feel hopeless because you're different. You just, you feel different. Thing, there's not a single person who gets you, who understands you. You just feel different, and, and maybe that causes feelings of hopelessness. Maybe you feel hopeless because the person you said I do to has turned their back on you. And now your marriage is in a hopeless wreck. Maybe you feel hopeless this morning because parenting is stinking hard. Can I get an amen? Especially in today's culture. Oh, man. And you feel like you can't win. And you have absolutely no idea what to do with these six knuckleheads that you love so very much that just push it. Maybe you feel hopeless this morning because the world and society is in an absolute chaotic mess and there's no hope in sight. Maybe you feel hopeless this morning because at the end of the day, no one can or will understand what you deal with. Day in, day out, every moment. That's where I am at times, a lot of times. Hopelessness, unequivocally devoid of hope. And it affects us all. But to understand the hopelessness that Jesus shows power over, we have to look at the definition of hope, the biblical definition of hope. See, the worldly definition of hope is this. It should be behind me. The feeling that what is wanted can be had or that events will turn out for the best. Like, I hope you feel better. I hope your kids obey you. I hope you get that job. I hope, I wish. I'm hoping for it, but it's not guaranteed. I'm crossing my fingers and wishing for the best possible outcome, knowing that it might not happen. And it's just totally up in the air. We use hope that way all the time. But let's look at the biblical definition of hope. See, the biblical definition paints a better picture of hope. It's, it's a true, it's a lasting hope. And it's this, it's a trustful expectation of the fulfillment of God's promises. Especially those promises rooted in the glorious good news of Jesus Christ for the one whose faith is in Jesus Christ. You see, there's a direct correlation between faith and hope. True hope involves and requires faith only in Jesus Christ. No one or nothing else. And this morning's passage looks at two instances where Jesus showed his power over the hopelessness of people. People who were driven to Jesus because of their hopelessness and who were driven to Jesus because of their faith in him. And we'll see that Jesus gave them true hope. And the question I want you to ask yourself over and over this morning as we unpack this passage is this. Who or what do your feelings of hopelessness drive you to? 
who or what do your feelings of hopelessness drive you to? Do they drive you away from Jesus? Or do they drive you to him? So if you're willing and able, I want to invite you to stand in honor of reading God's holy word. It's a long chunk, so just breathe. You'll be fine. I was like, thanks, Scott. This is a big one. Okay. So hopefully I won't get too tongue-tied here. Here we go. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports of Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And the crowd pressing in on him, so he said, sorry. And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. So here's what we're going to find in our text this morning. That true hope is found in Jesus Christ because of our hopeless standing. We'll also see that true hope is found in Jesus Christ because of our hopeless circumstances. And finally, we'll, we'll land on true hope is found in Jesus Christ because we're hopeless without Jesus Christ. Now, before we unpack this, I kind of want to set up how we're going to look at today's text because it's long and there's two, two things going on here. Um, Mark combines two separate hopeless accounts of individuals whose faith is in Jesus Christ, led them to him, and ultimately to have hope in Jesus. And so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at them concurrently, okay? So we might bounce around a little bit, 
but that's hopefully going to make it easier to unpack and understand as we go. Got it? Okay, so let's unpack how true hope is found in Jesus Christ because of our hopeless standing. And we find this in verses 21 through 25. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Now this section comes right on the heels of Jesus being asked to leave after he healed the demoniac. Remember that? They said, go away. Like, you killed our livelihood. Like, all those pigs, like, they're, they're gone. Please leave. And so what we find is Jesus and his disciples going back to the other side. But what we have to know is this. Miracles had already been performed on both sides. So where Jesus was coming back to, his fame was already well known. And this is where we are now with Jesus returning to where miracles had already been performed. And we're introduced by Mark to the central three people other than Jesus of our passage. A synagogue ruler named Jairus and his 12-year-old daughter and a woman who had had an illness that caused her constant hemorrhaging. Now, right away, we're confronted with the standing of these individuals in New Testament Jewish society. See, Jairus was one of the rulers of the synagogue. So when you're picturing Jairus, kind of think of this, like Pharisee, Sadducee, right? They, they understand the law. They're like religious elite. They're like, they're like top on the scale, right? So, but that's not exactly what we see of Jairus, though. Because what we see in Jairus is contrary to how most of the Pharisees and Sadducees address Jesus. Instead of trying to trap Jesus, trick Jesus, condemn Jesus, Jairus did not do any of that. We see a picture of humility and hopeless desperation. It's not a picture of pride and arrogance as we typically see from the religious elite. In addressing Jesus, it says Jairus fell at his feet and implored him earnestly. What scripture doesn't say is Jairus addressing Jesus this way. Hey, Jesus, you owe me a favor because I'm of good standing. I'm one of your religious elite. I rule one of your synagogues. I command respect and I expect you to do what I ask. This is not what scripture says Jairus did. See, Jairus understood his standing before Jesus was hopeless and he was totally dependent on Jesus. So we find Jairus as a respected ruler in a hopeless standing because of his inability to do anything for his daughter. And he was driven to Jesus because of the faith he had in Jesus to heal his daughter. Not because of his standing, but in spite of his standing. He stood before Jesus begging and pleading for his daughter's healing because of his hopeless standing. Then we have the daughter of Jairus, right? Now, skipping down to verse 42, it tells us how old she is, for she was 12 years old, right? And all of this matters for the daughter because what we see, sorry, 
what we see is children are on the low end of Jewish society, right? So, like, you think those that were, like, outcasts and stuff, and then children were, like, you just didn't want them around, right? It's like, shoo, shoo, shoo. But to be a girl was, like, less than a boy, okay? So think low and then lower. And Mark paints this picture of a young Jewish girl on the throes of death in a hopeless situation. And her standing in society should tell us that she should and would get passed over by Jesus. That there were more important people for Jesus to attend to, to heal, to perform miracles on. Like adults, like men, like the religious elite. But we see a little hopeless and completely helpless girl with little to no standing in society laying on her deathbed. And that standing in society provided a very hopeless outlook. But standing for her is a dad who conveys her hopeless standing by addressing Jesus and demonstrating faith in Jesus. Now finally, we have a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. All of this matters in her standing. Because think of it this way. First, she's a woman. Unfortunately, in Jewish society, women like kind of lived a life of anonymity, okay? Like you knew they were there, but that's about it, right? So like think they're in the background. They're a part of society. They're above children, but they're not much in the ranks of importance. Her standing kept her low. Now, the other thing that we have to note about this woman is she had a condition that caused her to bleed constantly for 12 years. And this is like a very seemingly hopeless situation. But see, to consistently have a bloody discharge would render her ritually unclean. Impure within the religion of Judaism in the nation of Israel. To be ritually impure or unclean was a sentence to being an outcast among society. The Jewish religion conveyed that unclean persons transmitted their condition to anything and anyone they came in physical contact with. So her impure state, by touching anything and anyone, would then enable them to be impure. Here's the difference, though. She couldn't get ritually clean because the condition kept going on. So whereas I could go to the temple and be cleansed, right, she could not. Talk about a hopeless standing. She's on the literal fringes of society, looking from the outside in. Not only a lonely woman, but one with a condition that demands her to be ostracized from everything and everyone. But we see that this woman, regardless of her standing, had faith in Jesus. Her hopeless standing drove her to Jesus, not away. So we have a picture of three individuals whose standing was hopeless and were driven to Jesus out of that hopeless standing because of faith in him. And these pictures of hopeless standing represent each of us today. Romans 3.10 says this, no one is righteous, no, not one. And continues on in 22 and 23, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction, absolutely none, in our standing before God. 
It doesn't matter if you're, if you're the president. It doesn't matter if you're a beggar. It doesn't matter if you're a drug addict, a child, a woman. A man. It doesn't matter. Our standing is that of a hopeless standing because our standing doesn't make us righteous, doesn't make us worthy. Beyond any doubt, we are all hopeless in our standing before a holy and righteous God. So the question is this. Who or what does your standing drive you to? Maybe, maybe you're confident in who you are in your standing. And you command a bunch of people at work. What does that standing drive you to? More effort? More work? More people to stand above? All for what? Your high standing is hopeless because it gets you nowhere in regards to your relationship with God. Maybe you're on the flip side of that and you're totally ashamed of your standing. And the hopelessness you feel in that standing drives you to things or people that don't fix or fill what it is you're looking for. Who or what does your standing drive you to? Be encouraged. Every one of us is hopeless in our standing. And when we put faith in anything other than Jesus to fix or justify that standing, we will continue to find emptiness and perpetual hopelessness. Because without faith in Jesus, we will never find true hope. And true hope is found in Jesus because of our hopeless standing. But let's also look at how true hope is found in Jesus because of our hopeless circumstances. Let's look at the hopeless circumstance of the woman first, okay? We find that in verse 25 through 33. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had. She suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she, for she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing in around you and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. As stated earlier, this woman was ostracized from everything and everyone, right? Because of her unclean condition. Talk about a feeling of perpetual hopelessness. I mean, I think there's many of us here today who can identify with not belonging or not being a part of things and in turn feel totally hopeless in that circumstance. We feel like we don't matter and have no ability to become a part of normal everyday life. We feel stuck in the hopeless circumstance we're in. But to make matters worse, we see all of the woman's efforts in trying to find healing. All of her efforts. She tried many doctors, suffered much under many doctors, and she spent all that she had, everything, to fix the condition. But it gets worse. Because the condition only got worse, not better. I think one of the most defeating things we experience in life 
is coming to the end of every effort to remedy the hopeless circumstance that we are in, and we come out empty-handed. We feel powerless and desperate, completely suffocated by hopelessness. There's nowhere and no one to turn to. You've tried it all. And through it all, completely at her wit's end, with nothing left to give or do, completely hopeless in this condition that's only gotten worse, the woman comes to Jesus. See, her faith in the healer, whose fame had spread across the countryside, drove her to Jesus because of the hopeless circumstance she was in. Now let's look at the hopeless circumstance of Jairus and his daughter. We'll find this in verses 22 and 23, and then we'll skip down to verse 35. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. So we already know that Jairus' daughter was in the clutches of death. She was knocking on death's door. And as a parent, Jairus found him and his daughter in a seeming hopeless circumstance. And even more so for the little girl, unable to do anything but fight for her life, just laying in a hopeless circumstance. But Mark continues to explain this account by telling us it had gotten worse. Both instances, the circumstance got worse with the woman and now the daughter. Now the little girl died. And now the tones changed from maybe like, maybe a slight glimmer of hope, just a smidge when she was in the clutches of death to everyone now saying, there's no use. She's dead. There's no point. Why bother the teacher any further? She's died and absolutely nothing can be done. Jairus was hearing from everyone to give up to the hopeless circumstance he and his daughter were now in. Now a quick side note about Jesus explaining that the girl was only sleeping. This is a perspective that only Jesus has. He's not saying she's alive and sleeping. He's not saying she's in a coma. Like the doctors and people think about it. They would know if she died. What Jesus is saying is that this is from a timing of how long she will be dead. John 11 tells the account of Lazarus' death. Just to clear up the picture of sleeping versus death. And it actually meaning the same thing when Jesus says it. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. Fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, 
boneheads. Lazarus has died. So Jairus and his daughter went from a hopeless circumstance in her being on the throes of death to now an utterly hopeless circumstance in her death. With everyone telling Jairus to give up. It's no use. Don't bother Jesus anymore. But Jairus had faith in Jesus and was driven to go with Jesus back to his house for the expected healing of his daughter by Jesus because of the utterly hopeless circumstance he and his daughter were in. So again, the question is this. Who or what do your hopeless circumstances drive you to? Who or what do your hopeless circumstances drive you to? Maybe it drives you to bitterness or anger, isolation, despair. There's days I wake up, I'm like, it's going to be a good blood sugar day, and it's not, and I'm still okay. And then there's other days I'm just like, this is the worst. I can't fix it. Maybe it drives you to people you think can fix or solve the problem. Maybe the hopeless circumstances you're in drive you to find escape in an unhealthy way. Like if I just, if I can just escape for a little bit and ignore the hopeless circumstance I'm in. Maybe it just drives you to contemplating giving up and quitting everything, even life. Not foolish to know that there's someone in here that, that wrestles with that. Dear friend, faith in Jesus matters immensely. Matters immensely to finding true hope, even through the hopeless circumstances of life. Because true hope is found in Jesus Christ because of our hopeless circumstances. Now I want to end with us talking about the last point. True hope is found in Jesus Christ because we're hopeless without Jesus. We see this true hope given to the woman first in verses 33 and 34. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So we see, out of the woman's hopeless standing, out of the woman's hopeless circumstance, she demonstrated much faith in Jesus. She spoke up, she spoke out, claiming her faith was in Jesus to heal her. And what did Jesus say healed her? Not magic. Not, not even the touch. Did you get that? She was thinking, just a touch. I'd be healed. That's not what healed her. Solely faith. Faith in Jesus alone. But the true hope she found, get this, was not in her physical healing. My true hope is not finding a cure for diabetes. No, as glorious as that would be. Because my true hope is found in Jesus, because my faith in Jesus to do everything he promised will happen. It was the very words Jesus spoke to her. Her faith and what he said was what the true hope was in. Her faith had now made her well, and she can now go in peace. Church family, get this. This is an absolutely beautiful picture of restoration. 
Her being made well shows her restoration, not just her body, but also among society now. And her going in peace is a picture of restoration in her relationship with God. She can now, she's no longer unclean. So now she can go be close to God, worship him in his temple. It's a stunning picture of restoration. And we see something similar in the true hope given to Jairus and his daughter. We find that in verse 36 and then the last few verses. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only what? Believe. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. See, Jesus makes it very clear that faith in him is the only requirement for true hope. Because Jesus is our hope. And the true hope Jairus and his daughter found was actually not in the little girl being raised from the dead. Shocker. But that's not the true hope that they found. Though that was miraculous, it was in Jesus himself. Why? Physical death comes to us all at some point. So Jesus didn't remove death as an option for the little girl. He didn't say you're never going to die. He just awoke her from that little sleep of death. Why? To demonstrate his power over death. Church, this is a stunning picture of rescue. The little girl was rescued from death itself by Jesus because of Jairus' faith in Jesus. And surely Jairus and his daughter found true hope in the power and presence of Jesus Christ from that moment on. Dear friend, we're all looking for two things in regards to hopelessness. Restoration and rescue. We yearn for a restoration of hope, to hope for hope to be restored and a rescue from it. A rescue from this hopelessness that we experience. We yearn for it. And this is what Jesus demonstrated in the healing of the woman and the raising of Jairus' daughter. This is exactly what he does for you and I. He restores our broken relationship with God and gives us hope that's lasting. And he rescues us from the hopelessness of sin and death. This is the glorious good news of Jesus Christ, church. That true hope is found in Jesus Christ because we're hopeless, hopeless without Jesus Christ. So who or what do your feelings of hopelessness drive you to? Where do you go when you're confronted with a hopeless standing? What do you turn to? Where, where do you turn when in the throes of a hopeless circumstance? Does the hopelessness you face drive you away from Jesus or drive you to Jesus? Listen very carefully, church family. How you answer those questions tells you where your faith is, where it lies, who or what it's in. If it's anything or anyone other than Jesus, then you'll only ever find a fleeting hope that's not lasting. Because faith rooted in Jesus Christ alone is what brings true hope to the believer. Amen? Martin Lloyd-Jones says this of hope and faith. Faith is not merely an intellectual awareness of the truth or even an intellectual acceptance of the truth. You can have that and still be without faith. 
Faith means a real trusting in him and what he has done on our behalf and for our salvation. The man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He does not look at what he hopes to be as a result of his own efforts. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work, and he rests on that alone, and he hopes on that alone. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ that assures those who have faith in him of the true hope that's only found in him. And the sure and lasting hope we have is this, that Jesus Christ alone stands for us. We hope for the standing of Jesus Christ, not ours. It's his righteous and utterly perfect standing that stands in our place on judgment day. Our faith in Jesus assures us of a hope we can look to. That even though we mess up, even though our best is not good enough, the hope we have is that we will look to Jesus to stand in our place, to stand for us because of his love for us out of his perfect record. Faith provides perspective, and perspective matters to hope. The hope we have in Jesus is sure, it's true, totally complete. It's perfect. And even though we may still struggle with hopelessness, even though we may still battle illness or circumstances beyond our control, because quite frankly, it is, it's only Jesus that provides hope within hopelessness. Jesus took on and defeated the most hopeless of hopeless circumstances, death. He willingly died for you and I, a gruesome death, and conquered it when he was raised to life three days later. Dear friend, this is the true and lasting hope we have in Jesus Christ. Our faith in him matters immensely. His defeating death assures the believer that we will be raised with him and be with him forever. No more sickness, no more pain, no more despair, no more death. Absolutely no more hopelessness. You see, there is hope within hopelessness. This is what Jesus gives the believer. And if you are not, I pray today that you place your faith in Jesus Christ so that you can find true hope in this life. But if you have placed your faith in Jesus for salvation, I pray you're, you're reminded of the hope you have in Jesus. Because of your hopeless standing, because of your hopeless circumstance, because you're completely hopeless without Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, it's so good to be with other brothers and sisters in Christ as we open up your word and are reminded of the hope that's only found in your glorious son. God, thank you that everything you've said happens. God, thank you that your promises are true. God, thank you that the hope that we have in you is lasting, but God, let us be honest, like there's times we, we forget. There's times where the situations and scenarios in life weigh us down in such a way that we lose sight of the hope that we have in you. God, I pray today that we're reminded of that. God, you are our hope. 
And if it wasn't enough, God, you sent your son to die for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him for me. God, we're unworthy. We're undeserving. But God, you were, you were good and you were loving. And God, I just pray for the hearts of these people out here today. God, I, I pray that there's a restoration and rescue. God, I pray for true hope. Thank you that our hope's in Jesus and it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.